maybe seated. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I'll walk. There my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Amen. If there's ever been a verse to a song that summarized a psalm, that one just did. I want to welcome you to Watkinsville. Look, if you uh, are not regularly here with us, you may not know, but in the summers, we go to the Psalms every summer. And last week, Pastor Carlos said, you know, this is like visiting an old friend. And that's what it's like every summer when we open up the Psalms again. In fact, last week, if you were here, you might remember Psalm 86, Pastor Carlos, you know, he had had the chance 20 times to either teach or preach that psalm. And he said, you know, this is like a good old travel partner for him. Well, this morning we have Psalm 87. So Psalm 87 is a great psalm. But I'm pretty sure once we read it, you'll realize that this psalm probably hasn't been many preachers' travel partner. Psalm 87. Now, it's seven verses, at least initially, fairly obscure. But I'm wondering where you were born. Like, you know, when you're trying to get to know somebody, one of the very first things you'll ask them is, hey, where are you from? Were you born there? Because where we are born is unique to us, right? Have you ever known anyone born from a famous place? I was born in Indiana. Uh, not too special. My wife was born in D.C. That's a little bit unique, right? Not a state. Not a city, but the District of Columbia. In fact, on average, there's about 9,000 births every year in Washington, D.C., and about 90,000 in Indiana. My son-in-law was born in Pretoria, South Africa. This morning, in Psalm 87, we're going to look at what it means to be born in Zion. So let's open up Psalm 87 together and let's read this text. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there. 
they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Well, you see what I mean about Psalm 87, right? In seven verses, this psalm touches on prophecy. It touches on eschatology, which is really the end of times. It touches on missiology or missions. And at the same time, it is practical for us. The big idea or the big summary, if you will, is that this psalm celebrates Zion as the chosen city of God. And it looks forward to people of all nations becoming citizens of this city in the future. So for those of you who like to take notes, I've got three parts to my sermon this morning. Isn't that good? Just like a good sermon. <laughs> yes, part one, we're going to spend most of the time on verses one and two. I would title this, What is Zion? And why does the Lord love it so much? Let's look at verses one and two together in Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. So you can tell here right in the beginning out of the gates, he's obviously referring to the city of Jerusalem, but it's a little bit confusing because he never really says Jerusalem. He refers to this city twice as the city of Zion. The word Zion refers to Jerusalem. It's also a poetic description of Jerusalem, but at the same time, it means more than Jerusalem. Zion means the city of our God. So let's look and see where it shows up first uh, in the Bible. Now I want to let you know, I'm going to put the verses up here because I do have a lot of verses I want to go to. It will uh, enable us to move a little bit more quickly. For those of you who are taking notes, you can write the verses down and then maybe enjoy it up here. If you've got your Bibles, let's go together there. If you're using your phone, that's great, but they'll be up here. Let's go to 2 Samuel verse chapter 5 and look at verses 6 and 7. And we're looking at where does the word Zion really appear first. Beginning in verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So we see here right in the beginning during the time of David, that Zion was really synonymous with the city of David. But after he took that city, 
he immediately goes and he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David to the stronghold of Zion. Just flip to the next chapter, chapter 6, and we'll look at verse 12 together. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So we see him bringing the ark of God into the city of David. Remember that the ark of the ark was where the covenant, the ark of the covenant was and it was that sacred place where the seat of the Holy of Holies was, where God would meet his people. More specifically, where he would meet that priest once a year who would come and make atonements. It's where in the tabernacle, it's where his presence was. That's a big deal. So Zion became the center of worship and the center of God's presence. Then if we go to 1 Kings... So just turn right a little bit and go to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. So now we see the Ark of the Covenant is now in Jerusalem. Zion is referred to 150 times throughout Scripture, most of the time referring to Jerusalem. So think about this. God's Work happens in time and space, right? And in the old covenant, he chose Jerusalem where much of his work would take place. Jerusalem is unlike any other city. We can see in verse 1 that God himself founded Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is unique for many other reasons. No other city in Israel was chosen by God to be the place of his dwelling, Jerusalem is where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. When David reigned as king, he made Jerusalem the kingdom's capital. In Jerusalem is where sacrificial worship and priestly service took place. Jesus died on the cross in Jerusalem. The apostles served in Jerusalem, but sent out missionaries from Jerusalem, and one day the ultimate kingdom of God will be established on the earth as the new Jerusalem. When you look in verse 1, you see the psalmist telling us, he says, on the holy mount, and it's referred to as the holy mount because God himself dwells there. You see, wherever God is, is holy. God doesn't have to make himself holy. He just is holy. Remember when God came to Moses? 
in the burning bush. And he told Moses, don't, don't come any further. Take your sandals off. Because where you are standing is holy ground. Why? Because God was there. Now look, when Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, conquering death, the most amazing thing physically happened in real time and space. And this event links the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Some of you know what I'm referring to or thinking of. The veil in the temple located in the tabernacle that separated God's presence and his glory from the people was torn in two. Why? Because it wasn't needed. Why was it not needed? Because Christ conquering sin and death by raising from the dead brought a new covenant to us. The Bible says a better covenant to us. Same God, new covenant. So where does God dwell now? For those of us who have been born again in Christ, who are from Zion, he dwells in us. What does that mean for us? It means that our lives should reflect that a holy God dwells here. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, the Bible says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what does it mean to be holy in our conduct? I think if I was given a little quiz, most of us in here if it said, you know, define God's holiness and we had multiple choice and we saw the word separate, we'd circle that one. Because we know that's what holiness means, is God is separate. He's unlike any other. But that should be true of us as well. Guys, look, we're living in a culture that is having an absolute sexual and moral revolution right now. A culture of confusion. And there should be clear lines of delineation separating us from the world around us. And that's what that great doctrine of sanctification is all about. It's that process where by God drives this process by the power of his Holy Spirit. Where he takes us and makes us more like his son. Our thoughts and our actions and our words should be different. How we spend our time and our money should be different. What we look at and listen to and consume should be different. What we post should be different. How we entertain should be different. How we handle hard times and difficult days as those from 
the city of God should be different. You see, Jerusalem represented a place, right? But Zion represents a community of Christ followers no longer bound by geography. And as this psalm unfolds, it really gives a hint that there will one day be a new Jerusalem where the covenant members are no longer from physical Jerusalem, but from Mount Zion where the children of God have their spiritual citizenship in heaven. And I want you to see that even in the Old Testament, the patriarchs, they didn't just have their sights only set on Jerusalem. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Hebrews 11, verse 9 and 10. The author of Hebrews says, talking about Abraham, says in verse 9, but by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Here we see Abraham yearning for the heavenly city of Zion. Remember the Apostle Paul teaches us in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. We are not from here. We are pilgrims from our homeland. We are passing through. So why does God love Zion so much? You look at verse 2 in our psalm. And he loves Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And I think there's a lot of reasons. I want to point out a couple of them, one now and one at the end. But I think one of the main reasons is that his presence is there. And you know, the great thing for us who are in Christ, being born from the city of Zion, is that we will have the presence of God and the nearness of God for all of eternity. Psalm 73. Let's go there. 73 verse 28. The psalmist says, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The Bible is telling us that the very nearness of God, that's, that's our good. You know, I moved my family to Africa in 2011. For some of the, you who know us, you know a little bit of our story. And we served as full-time missionaries for one year. And one of the things that I miss so dearly is the presence of God. The palpable presence of God in Africa. There, I had Giardia. Yep. There, I had malaria. There, I had bacteria in my gut. Let's just call it what it is. Travelers, diarrhea. Frequently. But there, I had the presence 
of God. What felt like daily. I didn't care about the physical discomforts. They were insignificant when I was in his presence. The Bible says the nearness of God is our good. It's something that we were designed for. It is something that we need. Without his presence, we would have nothing. We would not be living. You know, the worst part of hell, worse than the torment, would be living for all of eternity, forever and never, in his presence. Do you long for more of his presence in your life? When I was in campus ministry, when I moved down here to do that at, at the University of Georgia, we decided to have a big outreach. A lot of the campus ministries got together, and we, would, we invited this speaker. And for those of you who are probably in your 30s, you won't know him, I don't think, maybe even in your 40s. But his name was Tony Campolo. This guy was a nut. He was a left kind of leaning theologian, but had the gospel down pat. And we brought him in to speak to the students on a big scale to bring people to Christ. But during that day, in a more intimate lunch setting, about 40 of us had lunch with him. And this is in the 1990s, early 90s. This is when the Bill Hybels Willow Creek model was taking off the seeker-friendly model of church, really the CEO model of church, where you get this unbelievable communicator in there and make the whole church around him. And someone said, I'll never forget it, Tony, what do you think of the church today? And he said, you know, I'm impressed with how we do what we do in the church. He said, you know, in fact, if we have a young man that wants to be a pastor, I think we should send him maybe to get an MBA. That would be better. Maybe with an emphasis in marketing. He said, we are so good at church, I'm pretty sure if God pulled out, we could keep it going. If Christ pulled out of your life for a day, what would happen? Part two is the middle three verses. No, sorry, verse three. Verse three. Verse three in our psalm says, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. What I want to do is just look at a couple other passages in the word that say glorious things about the city of our God. Look at Psalm 48, one and two. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Zion is referred to here as the joy of all the earth. It is the city of the great king. Now to Hebrews 12. Verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A lot happening in that verse. 
the author of Hebrews is telling us here that one day the heavenly Jerusalem will be there with angels, too many to count, with Christians who have been counted, and with Jesus and his blood. Yes, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. The third and final part is where this psalm takes a missionary turn. If you're taking notes, you can title this, God's enemies, God's enemies will be born in Zion. Look at these verses 4 through 6 in Psalm 87. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab in Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one will be born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. You know, we often think of missions kind of as a New Testament idea or construct. Yet, God is a missionary God. His heart for the nations is all over the Bible. Even last week in Psalm 86 when Carlos was preaching, I don't know if you caught verse 9 in Psalm 86. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. In these verses in Psalm 87, we're learning that many of the surrounding pagan nations will look in verse 4. They'll know God. They'll know him. We think that's a New Testament concept. They'll know God and walk with him. And they'll be born in Zion. I mean, this makes no sense. These are pagan nations. These are God's enemies. The psalmist is saying they'll know God and they'll be born in Zion. They won't just know God. They will know him and walk with him. How can this be? Let's look at Galatians chapter 3. Verses 28 and 29. Paul makes it really clear here in the book of Galatians, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heir according to the promise. You see, what you need to know in our text this morning is, is Rahab is not the harlot that you're thinking about. That would be amazing. But Rahab means Egypt in our text. And Cush is referring to Ethiopia. The psalmist is foretelling that in the heavenly Zion, one day all of God's surrounding enemy nations, pagans, will be there. There will be Egyptians, Babylonians, Philistines, and Ethiopians. Today, the psalmist is telling us there will be radical Hindus, there will be Muslims, there will be Buddhists, there will be Arabs, there will be atheists, there will be agnostics, there will be you, and there will be me. If you are in Christ, you were once 
an enemy of God. Look, there are 7.75 billion people in the world today alive. And 3.2 billion of them, which is 41%, live in unreached people groups with little or no access to the gospel. Unless someone goes and carries that news to them, they can't know. They're unreached. They can't just go down the street and hear from someone. 90% of the world's Christians live with 10% of the world's population. You have to let that sink in. 90% of the world's Christians live with 10% of the world's population. How can we live with this reality? How can we live with ourselves and our comforts knowing that this is true? It's not okay. God promises to populate Zion with foreigners of every people and tribe and tongue and nations. And verse 6 teaches us that not only will they know the Lord and walk with him, but the Lord will know them. They will be listed. He will record them in the Lamb's book of life. Earlier I said there were a couple reasons why I think the Lord loves Zion more than the city of Jacob's. And I think this is probably the biggest reason here is that I think he wants us to be there with him. He loves us enough to invite us there to be with him forever in the heavenly Jerusalem. Remember back in 2019 as a church, God gave us an amazing heart for the being people that live in India and Nepal and South Asia. And he laid it on our hearts to pray for them. And then he laid it on our hearts to go find them. And we linked up with the International Mission Board. And in the spring of 2019, we sent a team out there and into South Asia. And they found them. And towards the end of that trip, had the privilege of the first ever being person, an otherwise unreached people group, coming to faith in Christ. His name is Ramesses. And then on the second trip that I had the privilege of being on, we went right back to Ramesses' village. And... He had led other people in his village to Christ. We had the opportunity to go to yet another being village, and we experienced another being believer that we led to Christ. His name is Chanswar. We also had the opportunity to, to lead our translator's grandfather, though not a being, a very elderly guy in a village with a lot of influence in a remote area of South Asia, led him to Christ, and he was baptized. In the spirit of verse 5 and 6, I want you to know that Ramesses, Chanswar, and Keshwar may have been born in South Asia, but they were born again in Zion. They are from Zion. What about you? Do you know the Lord? Most importantly, does the Lord know you? You know, we refer to heaven as home because we were born there. I've never been there, but I was born there. The final verse in our psalm this morning is verse 7. Singers and dancers alike 
say, all my springs are in you. This psalm ends with celebration. How could it not? You see, the result of being born in Zion is singing and dancing to the Lord. All our springs are in God because our springs come from God. Jesus taught us that whoever drinks from the water he gives will never thirst again. Jesus' springs of grace and mercy and life flow to us in a way that makes Niagara Falls look insignificant. Do you know that every second over over Niagara Falls flows 3,160 tons of water. And if you want to make much of that, you can talk about it. But rather, if you want to make much of that, you could go get on your knees and open your mouth and drink. The way for us who were born in her, born in Zion, the way that we can make much of the king of Zion is is to get down on our knees and open our mouths as wide as we can and never stop drinking from his fountains of grace, his mercy, and his nearness. This morning, I know there are some of you who don't know with absolute confidence that you are from Zion, the city of our God. You can't leave here this morning without the full assurance that you've been born again and thus your citizenship is in Zion, the city of our God. So in a moment, we're going to close with One last song, and I think this could be an opportunity for you to make that a certainty in your life. The band is going to come out here. If you don't know that you are in Christ and that God knows you, would you consider coming down here and letting me know? And I will pray for you. What about some of you who are here who feel like you need more of God's presence in your life? Or maybe you feel like your life lacks the holiness of someone born in Zion. Maybe you just need to come and pray down here at this altar this morning. Maybe you need to come and on your knees, open your mouth wide and simply drink from the King of Zion. Some of you may need prayer. Why don't you come and we'll pray with you here. Look, we're going to close in a song. We've got time. This is a six-minute song. This is your time to respond to maybe what God is doing in your life. You come as God leads for his glory and for your good this morning.